0: the word of God from Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word, given for our good. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Um, would you humor me and remain sitting just a moment longer as we. Um, these are, you know, the book of Revelation is uh, so difficult, and uh, we really need God's Spirit to illumine the text for us. Heavenly Father, um, it is a strange world in which you have written this portion of your scripture, and we confess that we have not only a lack of knowledge, but hard hearts. And so we need your spirit to soften our hearts and to illumine the scriptures. And so would you do that, Lord, this morning? And would you just make us open to your love? Like there's this tendency, Lord, in our hearts to um, just make light of it all, to just turn it all off, to grow numb. But would you... Open us to your love this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be back and to be with you. It really is a a distinct honor and privilege to be our pastor. If you are visiting, we're really glad that you are here uh, we are, we've recently begun a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And I know there are a few of you who are ready to get to that place where there's like locusts with human faces on them. You're like, what's that about? You're ready for that? So not yet. All right, just chill out, weirdos. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But what we have said is that the, this final book of the Bible, Revelation, it's a gift. It's not just telling us weird trivia about the future but it's trying to speak to us in this very moment. And we know this for a couple of reasons, but, but my, mainly because the whole book of Revelation begins with these seven letters that are written to seven churches. And two weeks ago, we looked at one of those letters, and what we heard read for us just now is the seventh letter of those seven. And this particular letter shows us a lot, but mostly... It shows us that Jesus sees us. Like he really sees and knows our spiritual state. And what he sees is so important for us to grasp. Jesus is going to help us to know ourselves and to be honest with ourselves And I know, like, I know that we all want to know ourselves better. That's why we're obsessed with Enneagram and Myers-Briggs, some template to tell us who we are. And those things are fine. Everyone relax, they're fine. But today we get something better. We get Jesus peeking into our soul and speaking truth. When my children were younger, uh, I would read them classic children's stories. um, But I really tried to read like the original versions of these children's stories, not the Disney ones. And I always found that they were more poignant and more dark, right, than the Disney versions that we were, that at least I was more accustomed to. And there's this one story that hits hard, and it's The Emperor's New Suit. Uh, Do you know that one? But do you, like, know the original version, the one that was written by Hans Christian Andersen? Allow me to begin by quickly retelling the story, because it's going to help us understand how this letter works. So there's this emperor who loved nothing more than to be in his dressing room, and he had a different suit that he wore every hour of the day. And it was really a point of pride that he was the most well-dressed person in his entire kingdom. And as you read the story, there's this temptation to understand him as like a vain person. But I think the word smug might be a better word. Smug, self-satisfied, self-congratulatory, really pleased with himself, feeling superior. Well, two con artists come into town and sold him on the idea that they have really expensive magic cloth and that they can tailor for him the most magnificent suit. And it wasn't just that the suit was expensive or extravagant, it's that the suit actually had magical power. And what was this power? Well, anyone who looked at the suit, it could test that person. The magical qualities of the suit could tell if you were Dimwitted or stupid or not, or if you were fit for the office or fit for office, particularly in his kingdom. And the way that things worked was, is if you could not see the cloth, it meant that you were dim-witted and unfit. But if you could see it, if you could see it, that meant you were in elite company. And so the king thought to himself, you know, if I were dressed in a suit of this cloth, I would be able to find out which of my men were unfit for their offices. And I could distinguish the clever from the dim-witted. And so his entire goal was to judge other men to see if they were clever or dull. So the king sends for his most trusted advisor, right? His oldest friend. I mean, surely this man can test the cloth. And this is like the king's right-hand man. Surely he is clever and fit to see this secret cloth of sorts, this magical cloth. And so his most trusted advisor goes to where the swindlers were pretending to be preparing the suit in the room. They're working on this cloth, noting that it's so light that you can't even feel it or hold it. And they, as they're working, they convincingly say, look here, all the patterns, come over here and admire it with us. And of course, the old honored friend and advisor could not see Anything at all. But he thought to himself, am I unfit for office? Am I stupid? Because if that's the case, I'll be considered unfit to, ha- to, to have the office that I do. And I'm going to, to go back um, and, and, and confess that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the emperor how wonderful it is. And so this same exercise essentially repeated itself with advisor after advisor going into the tailor's room, seeing it, coming out and telling uh, the king what it was like. And so the con worked all night on this suit. And when they were putting all the final touches on it, they encouraged the emperor to have a parade to show off this new suit and everyone who was following the progress in the tailor's room came back told him how magnificent the suit was and because no one wanted to appear like unfit or uh, not or like dim-witted uh, they all said the same thing so finally the day came and the emperor himself walked in to see what the suit was like and he saw nothing but he thought to himself i'm the emperor i can't be unfit for office if the emperor is unfit for office, what does that say about the rest of the kingdom? Because I am the most clever man here, so I can't be unfit. So I've got I've to go along with it. So he dons the invisible suit after undressing until he was completely naked. He puts on the suit. He admires the quality of the, of the materials, looks at himself in the mirror, thinks about how good he looks. He thinks that everyone is going to see him looking so magnificent, because maybe everyone else can see the cloth except for him. And so the day comes, and he goes on his procession, and he makes a parade throughout the city, and everyone is playing their part, exclaiming how wonderful the suit is, because they all know the deal and its magical quality that the suit can reveal. And so There are these men, they're even like walking behind him, holding his train or whatever, this lightweight material that no one can even see or feel. And then finally, a little boy in the crowd looks up and says, he's naked, he's not wearing anything. And there's this nervous laughter, and everyone realizes we've been duped. We've been conned. The emperor is naked. Now, when you read this story, in the mind of Hans Christian Andersen, the way that the story is written, the young boy is a hero because he is exposing the smugness of the emperor. And so here's the point. What if you had a friend who knew you so well that he could show you your blind spots? or how you've been deceived, or how even how everything in your life is all formed together to maintain these lies that we tell ourselves. What if you had a friend like that little boy who could show you where you've been deceived? And what if that friend could show you your spiritual blindness that makes you spiritually smug in an effort not to expose you or embarrass you, but to really help you. Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you really want to know yourself better, better than an Enneagram could reveal? As we study this letter from Laodice- to the Laodiceans, I-, I-, I want you to hear it like a friend to you and to me, warmly shoring up these blind spots Parts of it are going to sound harsh, but it's an act of love. And so my approach this morning for sort of uncovering the meaning of this letter is just going to come by two points. First, we're going to look at the sickness in Laodicea. And and by understanding the historical context, it's really going to open up the meaning of the letter. And then we're going to look at our second point, the sickness in the Western church, the one that you and I are in. So first, the sickness in Laodicea. As I begin to tell you about this particular city and its context, all the words that Jesus writes to them are going to make a whole lot more sense. So listen carefully. If you were looking at a map, you would notice that Laodicea is situated between two cities. Ten miles on one side is the city of Colossae. Uh, You know that city because that is the city that Paul writes a letter to his friends Uh, the letter to the Colossians. Now, on the other side, six miles away, is this city called Hierapolis. And these two cities were kind of known for two things. Colossae had a cold spring, and Hierapolis had hot springs. But Laodicea had neither. And so Laodicea had to pipe in water via aqueducts six to ten miles To their city. And by the time that it arrived, it was so far from the original source that it became lukewarm. And although the water looked beautiful, it was actually not drinkable, at least not at first, because something about the source in which the water was coming from and the the transportation mechanism, the water was filled with this inordinate amount of calcium deposits and other minerals, and it needed time to settle. And this means that the water would arrive to them, through this transportation process, it became medic. And what that means is that water that becomes medic induces vomiting, and it makes you sick. So the water in Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm and could induce vomiting. That was the reality for the Laodiceans. But actually, they were known for something more. This city had a reputation for being an extremely wealthy city. And there are two industries that historians Uh, tell us it is known for. First, it is the textile center for the entire region. It sold beautiful garments of this unique and highly desirable black wool. People everywhere wanted clothing from Laodicea. In some ways, it was the best-dressed city. And the second reason for this successful economy was that it served as a medical center where they were known specifically for a salve that healed eye infections. In fact, their school of medicine treated blindness because of, this pro- because of this product made from Phrygian powder. And as a result, Laodicea became this financial metropolis. And here's an example of its wealth. They were so wealthy that in 60 AD, multiple cities in the region were devastated by an earthquake. And when Roman cities were destroyed by natural disasters, they could ask for emergency funds from Rome. And so back one of the cities of the seven letters in uh, the book of Revelation, one of them is written to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was also destroyed by the same earthquake, and they were, they were beneficiaries of these funds from Rome, but not Laodicea. Laodice- the Laodiceans did not take a single penny because they were so wealthy, they were able to rebuild their city with their own resources. Totally self-sufficient. All right, you you're starting to get a picture of this city? What it was like? If I could quickly summarize the spiritual diagnosis, it would be this. Their affluence produced in them a deep spiritual smugness that blinded them to reality and their churches did not look any different from the society in which they resided that that is the sickness in Laodicea so now what I want to do is I want to work through Jesus's words as he speaks right to their context with profound specificity. And I want to build a bridge to show you the parallel sickness in the Western church, the context in which you and I reside. And this is my second point, the sickness of the Western church. I hope, what I'm hoping is that by allowing these words to pour over us, it will help dissipate our spiritual smugness. Let's begin in verse 15 and 16. Look there in your text. The Lord says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now the Laodiceans knew exactly the reference here. They knew their water came from two sources, one hot, one cold, producing terrible water. They have made the mistake of drinking it before, before it settled and vomiting it up. They know what he's saying. Now, think about the metaphor. If hot means having a passionate faith for Christ, then cold means not believing in Christ. You know, y'all see that? And yet, in this text, Jesus is saying that he would prefer the option of the church of Laodicea even being cold That option is even better than being lukewarm in the middle. Could he really mean that? Like not believing in Christ is better than lukewarm? And the answer is absolutely. See, being cold is actually one step closer to knowing Jesus than being lukewarm. Being lukewarm is a much more dangerous position, more than being cold. See, people who are spiritually cold have on some level dealt with the claims of Christ. They know where they stand. It's not great, but they do not presume upon God's grace because they know that they are not converted and that they do not belong to him, right? So that's not an ideal situation, but at least they are not presumptuous and self-deceived. But a lukewarm person would identify as a Christian, but has no existential need for him. And that self-deception is so stinking dangerous. And think about it. It's like a, a doctor, right, will become seriously frustrated with a patient when after a person is given a clear diagnosis, he or she still refuses to believe that they're sick. And therefore, the medical treatment prescribed by the doctor falls on deaf ears. Lukewarm Christianity may acknowledge that Jesus is a doctor, but who cares if you don't think you're sick or have much need for him, especially if disaster is on its way. Can you guys see how the, how the Western church is filled with lukewarm or cultural Christians? Let's continue. Verse 17 and 18. Look back in your text. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see like the Laodiceans, have literally said to themselves, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They were the ones who didn't even need funds from Rome after the devastating earthquake. Who needs God when you have yourself? (laughs) They saw themselves as self-sufficient. But Jesus says, you're not seeing Reality, Like you're wearing the emperor's new suit. Your situation, Jesus, think about Jesus saying this, is really dire even though you don't feel it that way. It's wretched and pitiable. Like if you could see yourself, imagine Jesus saying, if you could see yourself the way that I see you, it would be similar to like walking down the streets of downtown Denver through one of those homeless shelters If if you could see yourself that way, it would actually, it, it awakens your pity, right? It's pitiable. It awakens your pity. It's bad. And Jesus is saying, I know that Laodicea is the financial center of the region, but all of you are actually really poor. I know that your medical school produces a balm to heal your eye conditions, But you're really blind, even with medicine. And I know that you are dressed with the finest black wool, but you're naked. You are poor, blind, and naked. But you don't see it because you are spiritually smug. And who's going to tell you the truth? to confront the lie that is being reinforced by every bit of messaging in your culture, an entire city who says, nice suit, man. Can anyone hear these words to the Laodiceans and see the Western church? Like, we're the ones producing all of the theology books We're the ones who give away the most money, which although it's actually a small fraction of what we have, it's still a lot because we have so much wealth. Francis Schaeffer, he would put it this way. He said, The Western worldview is founded upon two principles, personal peace and affluence. And he says, No matter if you subscribe to that or you reject it, that is still the worldview. That's underneath our understanding of reality. And this leads to apathy. It leads to Laodiceanism. It leads to being smug and lukewarm. Money has a strange way of making us like compromise our ethics. We will throw away our ethics for political power. We'll throw away our ethics for getting cheaper products or for getting better investments. We will sell our souls for a buck. You know, in our family, uh, we have these ways of thinking that we are the exception to the rule, right? So just for instance, uh, if you saw like one of my shirts and you liked it, you'd say, hey, I like your shirt. And I couldn't just say thank you. I will say something like, you know, I, I got this from Goodwill because I want to be proud of the bargain, right? And to prove to you, I'm not materialistic. I'm an outlier. And now this came to my attention when I lived in Puerto Rico, right? And so I did something similar to that, that dance, right? And my friend said something to me like, he says, why do you do that? And I said, why do I do what? He says, why do you guys always talk about money all the time, even if it's a lower price? you still talk about how much you paid for things. And I didn't even realize it was a unique thing. It just felt normal. It's just how my brain thinks about things. See, because I am still part of the system. And there is a way for us to miss this passage. There is a way for us to stay in our blindness. And it's by thinking that this passage is speaking to someone else or to a different church. You know, the ones with the really big rock bands and the prosperity gospel and the smoke machines. Right? Or, or to think that it's not speaking to you because, you know, you're an English major or an education and no one gets those degrees to get money. But if you said those things, you'd be missing the point. You can miss this passage if you think that you don't have enough money to make an idol out of it. You might have an idol if you believe that if you just had a three-bedroom apartment instead of a two-bedroom, it could fix something in your life meaningfully. Or if you just had a better car so that you wouldn't be so anxious when the check engine light comes on. Or if you just had a little bit more health insurance so that your family could breathe a little bit easier. Like it's so easy for us to put security in our money or our own ability. Maybe even just to work hard and to get stuff. And then when, we, then when our stuff is in danger, we buy insurance to protect ourselves. Something to insulate ourselves from the risk. And that's why insurance is such a racket. If you're an insurance guy still so love you, we need you. But I'm saying it's a racket because our idols are so compelling and we don't even think they're idols. We know the God of Laodicea. Affluence is the king idol that opens doors and gives you access to other things that you perceive will give you the good life. And whatever it is, all of us grew up in the native religion of affluence. We grew up going to temples we called malls. And if you can't see any of that, you might be wearing the emperor's new suit. And all the messaging is reinforcing the fact that you look great. Every advisor Every commercial says, you look great. In the Bible, the condition of being spiritually lukewarm is always tied to the condition of sickness that comes from toxic affluence. An Anglican pastor and theologian, you probably know him, John Stott, he's now passed away, he says this. He says, the Laodicean church and the church in the West are half-hearted, and none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this one because it describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin deep religiosity that is so widespread. And it's made our Christianity flabby and anemic. It appears that we have taken a lukewarm bath. We need a cure. A cure. The seventh letter is unique because the first six letters in Revelation, they all have like one positive thing and one negative thing, right? But in this one, it appears that they only have a negative thing. And so is that the medicine? Like, is that the cure? Is that the good news? Like, as we used to say in the military, let the beatings continue until morale improves. Well, look at me, because I want you to hear me. That's just not how the Lord works. And so if you will let me, I'm just going to use my conclusion, kind of like a third point, to show you how this text is profoundly encouraging. And it is an antidote to lukewarm faith that we all, all suffer from at times. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so Jesus is giving us this sort of interpretive key to how to receive these difficult words, and it's that he loves us. And that's why he says so be zealous and repent. Now in that in the Greek, that word zealous is zelao, and from the root word we get the we get the word zeal. But in just about every other passage in the New Testament, that word is not translated zealous, but jealous. Now, often when we hear the word jealous, it has a sort of negative connotation, but it really depends on the context. Jealousy is a description of a person setting their love intensely on someone. It is a desire that is so strong that when it rains in a person, it compels them to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny themselves of anything, to suffer, to work, even to die. If only they can please that person. Now, if you set your love on yourself, you will become jealous of other people and you will become jealous of their gifts and their talents and their lives. But if you place your love intensely on Christ, you will be jealous for other people. And you will feel this unquenchable impulse in your soul to love Christ and his bride. Our jealousy for Jesus must be so messy that it just gets on everything. It just touches every part of our lives. Okay, so listen to me. Is that the solution? Be really jealous for God. Try harder. Do better. A holy jealousy... It's not something you can get. It is the fruit of other things. And what are those other things? It is a comprehension of Christ's jealous love for you. Jesus, like the little boy in the crowds, sees us just as we are, like he sees reality. He sees that we are lukewarm, naked, poor, and blind. But he didn't run away from you. He runs to you. He comes to you. And he says, listen, don't don't use your affluence to buy a false god. It's not going to work out for you. Instead, Instead, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments, not black ones, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this same one ran to take your place. Like he, he left the riches of heaven and he became completely poor for you. And you get his refined gold. He let the Roman guards take all of his clothes off and crucify him completely naked. While you get white, not black, but his white, beautiful garments. And it would be his eyes that get scorched and bleached out, blinded by the sun, completely exposed as he hung on two beams of wood. And you, you get solved to anoint your eyes. And why did he do it? Because he is jealous for you. He He has set his intense love on you. And so you've got to ask, are you open to his love? Verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. Notice that Jesus did not ask you to go to his house and knock on the door. No, he is running to you. And he is knocking the chambers of hellish lukewarm faith have doors that are locked on the inside. Are you open to his love? Does it melt you? He is inviting you to eat at his table. When Jesus walked This earth, he was always being rebuked for eating and dining with sinners. Who were these mysterious and unfit friends with whom Jesus dined? It was blind people who were healed. It was poor people who were fed. It was greedy religious people who asked for a tunic and got two. To be open to his love. To open the doors when he knocks is to say that I am spiritually blind, naked, and poor, the person that Jesus prizes so, so much. And when you see yourself that clearly, the smugness dissipates. And what's left is this unquenchable, jealous love of God that heats up your love. It moves you from lukewarm to fire-hot passion for your kind Savior. Are you truly open to his love? And would you sit under it and let it do business with you? Amen? Amen. Amen.